how you doing, brother? Great. Yeah, that's exactly right. Awesome. Aaron, am I saying it right? Aaron, yeah. Aaron, okay, <laughs> it's, cool. it's a weird name, but yeah, you're right. No, it's great, man. I love it. Um, I'm already rolling, so if that works for you. Awesome, that works. Um, where'd you guys start? My name is Eric Nottingham. I'm a senior at uh, Loveland High School, and I help to organize uh, the Northern Colorado Youth Climate Strike. Basically, I've always loved the outdoors, and I've always loved nature and the environment, and I've always had a passion for it. I think that our place in Colorado, um, we've been able to watch climate change from a very personal standpoint. a very local issue for us, especially with the prevalence of uh, oil and gas uh, exploitation in our uh, communities. And all of this kind of made me have this intense passion for the environment and love for it. I was able to decide that I really wanted to do something and I found a lot of uh, friends and peers who who agreed with me and had the same passions and we were able to come together and make this happen. Eyes on Conservation Podcast, Episode 178. I'm Gregory Haddock. Let me introduce you to Eric Nottingham. Eric is a lead organizer of Northern Colorado's U.S. Youth Climate Strike, an international group whose mission begins with the sentence, We, the youth of America, are striking because the science says we have just a few years to transform our energy system, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and prevent the worst effects of climate change. We are striking because our world leaders have yet to acknowledge, prioritize, or properly address our climate crisis. Their demands include the New Green Deal, a stop on all fossil fuels infrastructure projects, clean water, and a national emergency on climate change. Eric takes us back to the NOCO climate strike in Fort Collins in March of this year to tell us how he got into this and to see inside the eyes and the mind of an organizer. To hear a virtual tour of what the youth climate strike was like all across the globe, I highly recommend listening to episode 176 with EOC producer Kristen Tiesch when she was out in California to hear the people on the streets. In this episode, we'll take a dive inside the mind of an 18-year-old who's constantly been told that he doesn't have any business doing what he's doing, but does it anyway. Welcome inside the mind of a youth organizer for climate change. Myself and a group of my friends from all around um, the high schools up in Fort Collins and Loveland, we went up here and we said, you know what, this is a massive problem. Uh, Climate change is a problem that is going to be affecting our uh, generation and our peers for years to come. And we don't really have the time to wait to become adults, to vote, you know, do all the things that um, people might suggest um, to make change. And so we're going to make change how we know how to. And so we organized this rally and we got together with a bunch of different people from all around Poudre School District and Thompson School District, as well as a bunch of the uh, local colleges. And we made it happen. And it was a great success. We had about 200 people show up. And um, <laughs> from what I've heard, the uh, the schools that day were um, carpeted in green because we asked people to wear green to show support for the movement. And we were 
able to join a movement of about 1.6 million people around the world in 2083, I believe, different places in 125 different countries. So it was 125 different countries all doing the same rally at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you have this location in Fort Collins. Exactly. And uh, it, it's amazing to be a part of that kind of movement. And I said this uh, while we were at the rally, but this part of the rally, uh, the uh, you know global movement, it was only one small wave in a massive ocean, but every single person contributed. And I mean, if every single person had said, oh, you know, uh, there might not be that many people there with let's not go 1.6 million people or 1.5 rather would not have shown up around the world. As grassroots as it gets, it's a bunch of people who uh, know each other from different schools and said, you know what, we all have this shared passion. Let's go do something about it. So we met at a cafe and we started planning. And we, um, the organization we're a part of is uh, the U.S. Climate Strike. Um, we're registered with them. Basically what has happened is a, a Swedish teenager named Greta Thunberg, uh, who's now currently up for a Nobel Peace Prize for all of this, she, about four years ago, started striking from school every Friday. And she would do this, um, and she would sit in front of her capital in Stockholm, Sweden, and she would protest the fact that no one is taking any action on climate change. And she was just one person, and it was in just one city, in just one country in the world. And her movement has snowballed (laughs) until what you saw on March 15th, 1.6 million people, 125 different countries, all seven continents. So what happened was everything that has come from her though is grassroots. So we met in the cafes and we started organizing and we made a little name for ourselves and a little uh, Instagram page, NoCo Climate Strike. We just started making things happen and we started contacting other people and trying to bring this all together. So there was no central... There was no central hierarchy. We knew, uh, we just got into contact with people who knew people who knew people. And so I remember I, uh, I direct message on Instagram, uh, one of the people involved, uh, one of the national co-leads, Haven Coleman, who lives in uh, Denver, to get her help and see if I could help do anything on the state level or wherever it may be. And it's, it's those interpersonal connections that people make on social media or whatever that made this entire thing happen. So I I laughed because I think it's funny that um, you say, what's the organization that this is a part of? And honestly, it's just a bunch of kids. It's just a bunch of kids uh, texting each other. And it's led to this massive, massive movement. Paint a picture for us. So out here at Library Park in Fort Collins, Mm -hmm. And, you know, what was the weather like? What was the energy like? What kind of everybody's dressed in green? <laughs> paint, paint a picture for us. So it was fantastic. We had um, we had some people come with a bunch of uh, musical instruments and um, sound equipment up on the stage. And we had about 200 people all dressed in green, all jumping and hollering and uh, excited uh, to be a part of this movement. And it was fantastic because we set up on the stage and we had about four or five different musical artists um, singing for us, um, whether it was songs that they created or um, songs that were just uh, politically minded and uh, fit the uh, atmosphere of it. 
What, student artists or uh, community artists? All, all student art, artists except for one. Uh, we did have a community artist come help us, and she was the one who uh, <laughs> supplied the sound equipment. But other than that, it was uh, a senior from Loveland High School named Leo. Um, Talia, who is a senior from Fossil Ridge, and Brendan, who is, I believe, a senior at uh, Rocky Mountain. We're in Library Park, and it is one of many parks that are found in uh, Fort Collins and Loveland, and um, it's a beautiful park, and we decided on Library Park because we were in contact with uh, the city for permits for this rally early on, and we, 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 uh, we, we came to this park and saw how beautiful it was, all of the trees and um, <laughs> the good area for the rally. You know, there's a stage over, over yonder, and we just decided that... Um, over yonder. Who gets to add that in a regular <laughs> sentence? Well, you know. You're just going to drop that on me like that? <laughs> it's AP English, right? Uh, <laughs> it gets to you sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Read too much Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> My bad, you're right. <laughs> I, I think it, it, it adds into what I was talking about, Greta Thunberg. It's just one place, and it's an ordinary place, and um, that, that's what makes it extraordinary. And the fact that we have all these ordinary places that are beautiful and pretty, and you know, you can kind of connect at least uh, somewhat with uh, the vestiges of nature. Um, that's why we chose it. You know, because it is ordinary, and through that, it, it becomes extraordinary. Because why? How is such a beautiful and amazing place ordinary? You know, that, that, that is extraordinary. Greta Thunberg, mm-hmm. uh, an amazing young woman. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything specific about her or her ambition uh, that you find particularly inspiring? I think the extraordinary part is how ordinary she is, because she's just one person, and. She's just one person who likes the environment, and there are a lot of people who like the environment. And um, the amazing thing about that is the fact that she was able to take herself and apply herself to this issue. And through applying herself, she's able to affect other people and encourage and inspire other people to make change, such as myself and my my fellow organizers. Climate crisis is both the easiest and the hardest issue we have ever faced. The easiest because we know what we must do. We must stop the emissions of greenhouse gases. The hardest because our current economics are still totally dependent on burning fossil fuels and thereby destroying the ecosystems in order to create an everlasting economic growth. So exactly how do we solve that, you ask us, the children school striking for the climate? And we say, no one knows for sure, but we have to stop burning fossil fuels and restore nature and many other things that we may not have quite figured out yet. That's not an answer, you say. So we say, we have to start treating this crisis like a crisis, even if we don't have all the solutions and act now. That's still not an answer, you say. Then we start talking about circular economy, rewilding nature, and the need for a just transition. And then you don't understand what we're talking about. (laughs) I think the amazing thing is the fact that one ordinary person who cares about the environment was able to um, have a team of 12 people out in uh, Fort Collins, (laughs) you know, in the U.S., in a completely different continent, create a rally like that is the extraordinary part of it are there any other groups or people that inspire you to take action well first and foremost um personally the national park service um (laughs) i absolutely love what they do and the ideas behind preserving 
these beautiful places. And I'm, we're lucky enough to be about 45 minutes away from Rocky Mountain National Park. And to to be able to have wild and beautiful places to go to is an amazing thing. And that always inspires me. Um, other than that, I mean, just people like people who will always um, push for what they believe in inspire me. Um, I, I uh, am a student. Hitler, Mussolini, Mao. <laughs> well, not necessarily them. People who ins- who push for something uh, for the common good, <laughs> rather. Um, I, I'm, a I'm just keeping you on your toes, man. Keeping you, you honest. Got, you got me there, honestly. <laughs> but my, uh, I know that my personal, I have personal involvement in uh, the church a little bit. And the the way that I believe in it is um, that the church can be a motivator for good. For example, the civil rights era with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, those were the community organizations that um, was able to, you know, mobilize and push to create um, amazing change. And I have a personal friend uh, who used to be my youth pastor uh, <laughs> named Scott Hardinieri, who in my denomination, Disciples of Christ, he is pushing to uh, make the entire denomination and all the churches therein um, completely 0% um, emissions and 0% waste by 2030. And people like that who are working in the niche that they have uh, to create a change that compiles with people like at the organization 350.org, you know, I, I love them. And Bill McKibben and... Um, I grew up reading uh, Bill McKibben and um, The End of Nature. Ruth, there's a lot to be said for the idea of conservatism, of not changing more quickly than societies can cope with, that kind of thing. There's a sense, but that's long since abandoned. I mean, 2014 was the hottest year we've ever measured on this planet until 2015 smashed that, until 2016 smashed that. We're changing so fast. Right. We've been human, not not just like America's not ever seen anything like this. We haven't seen change like this since the beginning of primate evolution. I mean, we're in a complete different thing now. My my father actually um, is a biologist and um, he works in ecotoxicology uh, for the National Park Service. Uh, so I I was basically raised on uh, Rachel Carson, uh, Bill McKibben. All of those people, uh, Dr. Uh, Gro Harlem uh, Brutland, uh, she was another great one. <laughs> and all of all of the people who have been pushing for this change for years, since my dad was a kid, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and now here we are in 2019, and we still haven't made the impact that we need to have and made the changes that we need to change. And I think it's both inspiring to see figures like that, but more so inspiring to um, see the youth being, I guess, inspired on their own right to say, you know what, the past generations, well, there are these figures that are amazing and we respect the hell out of them, if you'll excuse my French. Um, (laughs) We need to take a, uh, action and take responsibility for our own future. And we need to push forward and we need to do that. And I think that so far the youth has been doing that in quite a few, uh, different regards, including climate change, although other, uh, social issues as well.
Yeah. Uh, so National Park Services, you've already expressed that you have a bit of an admiration for them. Absolutely. Your father works for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has your father, your parents, but perhaps your father in particular, been uh, an impact on your life? <laughs> well, my dad, um, I love my dad. He uh, He's always been inspirational to me because um, he's always, I, I, I literally grew up in uh, in parks because my dad worked at Grant Coors uh, National Historical Ranch in Montana um, before we moved down here to Loveland, um, where there's parks are plenty all around us all the time and basically he instilled in me uh, a passion for the environment but he did it not through any kind of teaching or you know a specific like hey you should believe in this you should love this but he would always take us uh, to beautiful places I just got back from my spring break vacation to the Grand Canyon uh, we went to Tuzigoot National Monument and just the Petrified Forest and the Painted Desert National Parks, the gorgeous, amazing scenery and amazing uh, landscapes that you just fall in love with. And I think that's the the greatest impact he's had on me was to show me these things that I love and I've come to love, as well as um, give me and inspire me and tell me that I can, through my actions, make an impact on the world in the way I want to. You can make a change. It can be a small change, but it will always compound and become something major and amazing. And I think that um, (laughs) I mentioned something about uh, the church. And the reason why I mentioned it earlier is because um, there's a gentleman named uh, Dr. Reverend um, William J. Barber, who uh, has inspired me quite a bit. And isn't that uh, the, the pastor from Moral Mondays? Uh, he is, yeah, and the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, he uh, he's an OG. He's something else. Oh, he's an amazing person. I was I had the uh, opportunity to see him speak. He's a part of my uh, denomination. Um, <laughs> I think it's funny because whenever I say uh, church people have their own uh, views on what that means, but to me, it's personally, it's just uh, the idea of having responsibility in social advocacy, and that that is my image of the church. Um, as represented through people like uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or um, William J. Barber. And we have to understand that fossil fuel, chemical, and other industries have allowed, have been allowed to poison our air, our water, and our land, contributing to an estimated 9 million premature deaths. We're not just talking about some puny left-right debate. This is about violence versus nonviolence. This is about survival versus non-existence. Across the United States, poor people face a crisis of water affordability, water pollution, and water scarcity in some areas that is exacerbated by climate change. As a percentage of income, poor households spend seven times as much on water bills as wealthy households. The United Nations recommends that in order to remain affordable, water rates do not need to exceed 3% of a household income, and yet there are 13.8 million low-income households that already spend more than 4.5% of their income on water. And some communities are facing water shutoffs. There are 4 million families in this country that get up every day and can buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. As he said, um, we have a moral duty 
the call out injustice and immorality in the world where we see it. And to neglect that duty is to be a part of the immorality and the injustice in the world. And so if you ever feel scared or worried about doing something or saying, hey, you know what, this might not make a difference, remember that looking back on it in the future, I want to be able to say I did everything I could in the time that I had by in the means that I had. I did every single thing I could to help make a difference. And that's all that matters in the end. And you have a moral duty to do so. And so I hope that would inspire you. There, you know, there's so much negativity around youth and their ability to make lasting change. What's your response to that? It's got to be kind of frustrating, right? It is very frustrating, especially um, my my favorite part of after any event like this is reading the uh, newspaper comment section online <laughs> to see all of the people with interesting uh, viewpoints on what just happened. What were some of your favorite comments? Um, I've been told that I am uh, a young Mao. Um, I'm not sure how that relates to wanting to preserve the climate, or like preserve nature, but... Um, in reference to the Chinese communist dictator? Uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> precisely, yeah. Um, again, no relation. I don't didn't realize I had to say that, but... <laughs> no, it was... It's. It, we definitely get a lot of pushback, especially from people saying, you know, climate change does not exist. Uh, what can you do about it? Let's get down to a little bit of brass tacks, right? Brass tacks. Um, so, yeah, even, even the staunchest climate skeptic will say, yes, the parks are beautiful. Nature is wonderful. Nobody's, you know, advocating for burning down Rocky Mountain National Forest. Um, I just don't agree with the extremes we're going through to uh, cut our legs out from under us to curb oil prices or to um, that, that will affect hardworking Americans and will cripple our economy. That'll be a bigger detriment to the United States and the global economy than it would be for us to um, do something about this quote, end quote, climate change. What, what, do you, what is your response to the average climate skeptic or to somebody who has that, um, that sort of mentality about it? So I believe that for one, I think that there are always um, plenty of jobs. And even as we uh, transition out of oil and gas um, into renewable energies, um, those jobs in the energy sector are often shifting. And um, it, it is not all or nothing, you know. Um, I think that the transition needs to be made. I don't think that by any chance like immediately banning uh, oil or banning fracking or something like that is the way to go. But the transition to renewable energies is um, the most effective way. But to be honest and to be quite frank, the public has a responsibility to itself uh, to preserve its, um, well, you could say cultural heritage through the parks or something like that. The public has the responsibility to itself to preserve um, the beautiful places and preserve the world as a whole. And I think that we should, the needs of the many do outweigh the needs of the few sometimes. Now, I think that there are plenty of ways. Um, I think there should be re-education, for example, uh, for people who have lived their entire lives working in the oil fields or uh, working in natural gas or coal or something like that uh, so that the transition can be made into either different careers or uh, different types of energy. Now, for example, my brother, actually, um, <laughs> he he was uh, working fracking for about a year and a half, two years, and he just uh, moved in. Now he has a job uh, installing 
solar, <laughs> solar arrays around Colorado and, um, and in the growing region of uh, the company he's, he works for, and things is it's the small things like that. Um, job security is good, but it is not. Um, it's not a dichotomy, you know. You it's not job security or a clean world. You can have both, and you should have both. Um, but we cannot sacrifice um, what we have. And in unsustainable practices like this, um, for the sake of jobs in the immediate right now, I think that there are always, always, always arguments against taking action. But morally, it is unjust um, to basically uh, screw over the future generations and um, to ruin and ravage the landscape um, for the benefit of the immediate future. What would you say, though, about somebody who says, well, you know, climate change is just a theory? Technically, you are correct. Um, but I think that that's a, um, a bastardization of scientific language uh, because it is just a theory, um, as is evolution. I think that people hook on to this word of theory um, and use it as an argument to say, we, well, we don't know if climate change exists. We do know if climate change exists. The facts are there to prove it, and they've been there since the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, it's, it's indisputable. It's, it's as if saying, um, do you believe in owls? <laughs> like, do hats exist? Uh, it's, it's a silly question because it simply is true. Um, and those who do say it's just a theory, it, it, it takes it from um, the scientific community who present it as such because um, they have to have a theory to prove, correct? Um, but it's impossible to prove anything uh, with absolutely no doubt, with absolutely um, no scientific um, uncertainty. And because of that, they call it a theory, uh, just like anything else is a theory. Um, but when scientists use it, it's different than when skeptics use it. Because when skeptics use it, um, they're using it to say, hey, look, it probably doesn't exist. It's only a theory. Uh, when science uses it, it says, this is a theory, as in this exists, and we know it exists um, to the surest um, capabilities of our scientific method. And our entire research all around the world and all through history where we're looking at ice cores uh, in the Arctic. You know, we're, we're re taking uh, measurements all around the world in the high alpine uh, regions. In fact, I was uh, speaking to Dr. Julia Klein, uh, who is the CSU professor of climate change ecology, who was able to come and speak with, uh, with us and at our rally, uh, who leads a group of a coalition of scientists on um, – in the mountain regions of the world who are constantly taking measurements of the atmospheric compositions and um, of temperatures as it relates to climate change, of course. And uh, that information and that data is not disputable. You know, it, it's not disputable to say it is, um, you know, 52 degrees today. Um, it simply is. And to twist the words of the scientific community um, to create this sort of, um, well, maybe or maybe not idea is to 
misrepresent the facts and misrepresent reality. Do you think that there's like something inherently unsexy about the climate movement? Yes, absolutely, actually. Um, We were thinking about this in relation to um, another youth movement, um, you know, after the uh, Parkland school shooting. We, the climate is very, as you said, unsexy because it's a long-term thing and it's not an immediate impact, you know, that you can say, wow, boom, that was climate change, you know, because climate change has been affecting a million things, but it's, um, it's a multiplier effect. For example, um, all the storms we've seen in the Atlantic um, recently and all of the devastation in Puerto Rico and in Florida after Hurricane Michaels, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane, um, you know, <laughs> there's so many you can't name Irma them Irma is now the strongest hurricane to ever plow into the Leeward Islands. Yesterday, we mentioned only Hurricane Allen from 1980 was stronger in recorded history for the Atlantic by five miles per hour. Irma today, however, has surpassed Allen by continuing to churn for over 24 hours with winds above 180. Allen never did that. first pictures now coming in from Puerto Rico after taking a direct hit. Hurricane Maria slamming into the island, and as you heard, one official saying the island is destroyed. Maria is the first Category 4 to hit there in nearly a and century. Tonight, Greater Houston remains paralyzed, a region of 6.8 million people sheltering in place as the flooding disaster unfolds. And just behind me, you can see... They've been intensified because the surface temperature of the Atlantic has risen and the higher temperatures of the water has created stronger, well, more evaporations, which has led to these stronger hurricanes. The same thing in the Pacific. Um, it's literally sh- been shifting the jet stream up away from California and over the Midwest to over um, Canada before coming down because the evaporation patterns of the Pacific have um, changed through uh, ocean temperature rise. Um, and that's a lot of the reason why California and a lot of these Western states are in a drought right now. Um, what does oh, yeah. the climate movement need to do if it wants to be more su- successful? Uh, what I was saying about the similarities to the other youth movement is that Parkland was an immediate thing. It happened. And there was a visceral reaction to it because it was an awful tragedy and everyone agrees with that. Um, whether you agree with what to do, that doesn't matter. Um, but climate change has no such um, immediate visceral reaction to it. You know, you have these awful things happening, but it's a slow temperature rise. It's a slow sea level rise. Oh, maybe it's a little warmer on one day and then the next day, you know, but it's it's nothing that you can immediately pinpoint where it's... Um, it, 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 there is no line that says this is the world without climate change. This is the world with climate change. Holy crap, we just passed it. Would you look at the changes? Because it's such a lengthy, um, it, it, it's a, such an issue over time, and that is why a lot of uh, that's why I believe um, there has been so much inaction about it. Is that there's no one little thing to push people towards action. Everything has been getting worse. There's been you know the hottest year on record um, for. I don't know the exact number, but it seems like every year. Like since, 15 out of the last 16 years? Exactly. Um, where it's just continually happening. And stuff like that should be worrying. But because it's all about averages, uh, because climate change is about averages, you know, it's about um, the change in the climate, not changing the weather. Because uh, weather climate is the amalgamation of weather uh, in a certain region. Because of that, it makes it quite hard to pinpoint and say exact um, exact events that will push people into action. And therefore, I think that's why we need the youth climate movement Um to push people into action because it is unsexy and it is a gradient and it is um, kind of hard to say where are we on the scale of quote unquote climate change, you know, as if there is a scale to it. Um, are we in the middle of it? Because are we in the end of it? Blah, blah, blah. Because there is no end. There is no middle. It's a gradient towards a, a different climate. And it's the the actual and realizable um, Images of climate change that need to be popularized more so than the average and honestly probably uh, worse effects um, because those are the things that can make people understand it more fully and understand uh, how they can help change it. It makes me think of like um, 
uh, one of the famous pictures of slavery around the time the camera was really developed and invented and began to be accessible to reporters. The picture of a, a slave had just been whipped to pieces. And that picture essentially went viral for what is the 19th century and led to a lot of abolitionist movements. Um, You've also got, you know, pictures of like an albatross being cut open and just stomach filled with plastic. Uh, or you've got the video that came out in the last couple of years of a giant iceberg breaking off the size of Manhattan. I mean, those are pretty those are pretty catastrophic events that for one reason or another don't seem to have had that same kind of effect that, say, a school shooting has. Um, you know, when you talk about a smog coming into Grand Canyon. I'm not trying to no, sure. shit on what you're saying. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you, you, you're uh, it's the same point, though, because it's it's such a hard issue because of the. It, all of the things that have been happening and all of the images that have been uh, coming out, while horrific, um, they can always be excused, I think. And that's the problem because we have to connect those to what we do on a personal level and then and only then will they be sexy, you know, only then will they be compelling and uh, truly honest. But without that connection, uh, even such big events and big um, images that you can point to, um, they won't be compelling. You know, they as, you, as we've seen by the lack of genuine uh, action uh, for the past 40, 50 years. How do you define success either through your organizing, your own organizing um, and, and that with your peers uh, or the climate movement as a whole? What does success look like? Success looks like change on a on all three levels, as we call it. It's the personal level um, where individuals begin to think differently and um, act differently in their everyday lives, even if they're just slight changes, um, because of the things that we have shared with them, because of the uh, the rally and the people who spoke, whatever it may be, all of that has impacted um, impacted change in their daily lives. I think that's uh, one measure of success. Uh, the second is uh, general society's. Um, view of the subject. Uh, I think making it less taboo, uh, making it um, something that we do talk about, that we do have conversations about, and we do start uh, addressing as an issue, um, that is incredible success because, I mean, how many days of the year do we talk about climate change? You know, it's, it's a massive problem that is, affects literally everyone on earth and it affects, um, all of the habitats on earth and every animal on earth and yet we never hear about it because um no one brings it up because the it's too abstract or um you know we were talking about that earlier but bringing that abstract into the um ra- into rationalizing it and into the uh, norm of society and to have people start talking about it and ta- start talking about it uh critically so that we can actually enact uh change that is effective and lasting uh that's one of our successes and our third success is legislation uh we want to basically improve the world and one of the means uh that we're lucky to be able to uh use through uh for that is um through government, you know, I mean, government was, uh, made to have a, um, community of people, um, that is stronger than the individuals. And I think that, um, we've already been in contact with several of our state, uh, senators and representatives about introducing bills, um, which by the way, you can do in Colorado. Uh, you are able to write your own bill if, uh, you so, 
uh, if you feel so called, um, and introduce it as long as you have a sponsor in the uh, state legislature um, to be voted on just like any other bill. And, That's a nice little tidbit for people to know. Mm-hmm. And also a tidbit for people to know, just to shout out, you can always testify. You have a um, constitutional right in the state of Colorado um, that if you sign up, you have to sign up by, I don't remember, a week before a certain date, but you have the... Uh, absolute right to testify before your state legislature because uh in the end they work for you uh so uh anyone listening um make sure make sure you take advantage of that because your voice is definitely strong especially when you use it <laughs> um but the centennial state making waves man you know it it's the best time too <laughs> um but it's it's the idea of changing legislation so that we can have a carbon tax um changing legislation so that uh there's more um uh, a stronger focus on subsidies for renewable energies. Um, it, it's the little stuff like the case-by-case basis of um, put in the uh, solar array, not the coal power plant. Um, it's the it, it's that kind of legislative impact that we're looking for, and uh, that kind of societal uh, change that we're looking for that will um, help support this legislative uh, legislative change. It's rad. Um, do, do you think we're going to make it? Do you feel optimistic? I do. It's really, 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 really easy to feel pessimistic. Uh, (laughs) there's a lot of things, um, to be sad about, but I think that we as a society have so much power and when we motivate it and when we use it, it's amazing. For example, the uh, the hole in the ozone. That is not an issue you hear about very often anymore because it basically has healed itself. Because uh, the chlorofluorocarbons um, that we were using in the 1950s and 60s, I believe, um, led to this massive hole, you know, that uh, everyone, it became a um, rallying cry for the environmental movement of the 70s. Um, And it was a very visual um, thing, at least on the satellite uh, images. (laughs) That has healed because we as a collective uh, global society has have said, you're right, that's not good. We should stop that. And we have um, cut our use of uh, chlorofluorocarbons by such sizable amounts that you don't use them anymore, you know, in your everyday life. It's not in your hairspray, you know, it's not in your refrigerator. Um, They're not a part of it. And it was such a small thing that made such a big impact on the world. And I think that we can do the exact same thing um, with our emissions um, and with our general pollution. And I think that 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 kind of uh, success makes me optimistic about uh, the future. Uh, even in the face of oil companies and gas companies that are worth billions of dollars who uh, disagree with every word I've said today, um, I think that society is always powerful and the pen is always more powerful than the sword. And honestly, the voice is more powerful than a dollar. Um, and that, that makes me optimistic. Well, like, uh, yeah, okay. So, like, what is your what is your prescription then? I mean, is the is the march really more about uh, education? Is it really more about awareness? Is there uh, is it about demands? If you were going to, and this is a separate question, if you were going to start making a prescriptions of 
start making prescriptions for what you think needs to be taking place, what would that look like? So basically, I think that we need to all, as a collective, um, adjust our points of view um, and see how our lives and our decisions in our lives uh, impact the climate. And I think that it's all it's it's motivating people and telling them and showing them that there are things you can do. There are the little things um, that can really make a difference uh, that will make a difference. And not only that, but I think that that conjoined with um, conjoined with action from um, the top, basically uh, from governments, from corporations, from the people who in one sentence can uh, change three, uh, change the behavior of 360 million people. You know, um, those are the people um, who, when they see that wow, all of these people are standing up and saying that they want this sustainability, they want this um, um, respect for our future, you know, they want this uh, movement, well, let's give it to them. Well, if, if you're into the free market aspect of it, um, companies will say, well, apparently our um, it, it would be safer for our bottom line to transition to green and renewable energy or transition to more sustainable practices because there's a... Um, a movement in society that says that is what we want. Uh, and it, it's basically what we're trying to do is foster that movement and foster that, um, that change in thinking, you know, it, and it has to come from, I think the youth are a good uh, means to do so because we are able to say, it, well, it's very obvious to say, hey, look, youth aren't usually that involved in politics you know they're not usually standing up and telling us oh my gosh there's something crazy we need to change it um and so when we do we have a special uh impact i guess that says hmm wow this really isn't normal uh maybe we should pay attention you know um for better or worse you know because uh the people who dissent i guess also pay attention to <laughs> what we were saying however uh, let's pay attention to the issue and let's have a conversation and let's start talking about this. I went around and I was kind of wandering around the rally a little bit uh, as our speakers were uh, talking or singing, our musical artists were singing, you know. Um, and I met four people in the back and it was uh, two five-year-olds and two three-year-olds that had come from their preschool who... Um, wanted to attend the rally because uh as they said they love trees <laughs> and <laughs> that was inspiring because we are we i mean i'm a teenager uh i'm i just turned 18 and we are the future generations however the future generations are also still to come and to see the um see the love of the environment through a child's eyes like that um it was powerful and moving and it was uh, inspiring to me personally and uh, yeah so of, of all of the things at the rally and all of all of the people and the smiling faces and the uh the chants that were yelled you know i think that was one of my favorite parts was hearing about how little kid like trees how can people get in touch with you so <laughs> that's a great question um I encourage you guys, uh, who are especially the young people on social media. Um, our Instagram is at uh, Noco Climate Strike. Uh, we have Climate Strike Colorado, um, Climate Strike CO that is uh, on Instagram as well, and the U.S. Climate Strike. And basically, wherever you are in the world, um, 
I can guarantee you there's um, some kind of social media uh, presence of the uh, global movement. And I encourage you to seek that out on Facebook and Instagram or wherever it may be and um, to follow them and um, get be, become a part of the community that can show support on the issue. And the other means of contact is, um, I guess, always... Wherever you are in the world, always reach out to the people who are making a difference and um, trying to advocate for uh, change in any way. And um, most of the time, it it seems kind of silly to, you know, write a letter um, or to email someone who, you know, they'll never get back to you um, until they do. And then it becomes a lot less silly. So, um, yeah, find us online. It's an amazing tool. Um, it's one that we use to make this whole event happen. Um, and yeah. And if there's not a chapter in their area, they can start one. Exactly. It's always hardest to find the first follower and the second follower, but after a while, everyone will want to join in because it, it, it takes guts to be the first person to say, you're right, I also agree with this. Uh, I think this is an amazing movement. Let's join in when you don't know whether the climate uh, rally you're going to will have, uh, you know, a thousand people or uh, three. <laughs> but you got to remember that this movement that we just saw of 1.6 million kids was started by one girl doing her own thing in one city, in one country, in Stockholm, Sweden. That's it one person who went out every Friday and soon enough there were about 1.6 million again in the end we're all just a bunch of people trying to make a difference and trying to make the world a better place it's it's such a hard thing to do sometimes to believe in ourselves and believe that we can really do it but we can and that's that and when we do you'll see it and I'm excited for that day to come Eric Nottingham thank you very much appreciate it thank you You've been listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock. If you liked today's episode, I highly recommend that you listen to episode 176 from EOC producer Kristen Tiesch, where she jumps into the front lines of the youth climate strike in San Francisco. For additional show notes, check out the page at wildlandsinc.org backslash EOC 178.